please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. The Ancient of Days is an apocalyptic description of God or the Lord Jesus taken from Daniel chapter 7 in a vision that Daniel saw of the Lord, and it seems like a fitting uh, phrase that we should be contemplating this morning. We kind of bookended the morning of music, at least with that expression, the Ancient of Days. Um, And as I mentioned last week, uh, what I want to do this morning is provide a corporate launch to our summer super study, which begins this Wednesday night. And for the next seven Wednesdays, I'm going to be preaching a series on the seven churches uh, which were addressed by Jesus Christ himself in Revelations verse, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So what I want to do this morning is just look together at Revelation chapter 1 and just kind of walk us through these 20 verses because they provide the background to the following two chapters by introducing us to the seven churches, but more importantly, introducing us to the one and only Lord of the church. So let's begin reading Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there. I wanted to say that because I'll never forget Years ago, when I was a student at the Master's Seminary, and I was on staff at Grace Community Church, and John MacArthur started a series on the book of Revelation on Sunday evenings, and the first Sunday night, he said, okay, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Let's begin reading. He said, the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay, let's stop. And for the next two Sundays, he preached two expositions on that First phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to do that this morning because I don't have the time to do that, nor do I have the capacity to do that. But I make this point to pause here to remind us that Revelation is more than just a book about the end times. What this book reveals or unveils is Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And how he will ultimately triumph over sin and Satan when he returns and establishes his kingdom here on this earth and lights up the eternal state with his, the splendor of his presence. And what we're about to read is that the Father gave the Son this preview of his future glory so Jesus could pass it on to us, his faithful followers. And so Jesus is both the revealer and the one being revealed here in the book of Revelation. Notice as we go on, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, that's us, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So Jesus communicated this revelation that 
that God the Father had communicated to him, he passed it on to the Apostle John, who was to write down all that he saw and all that he heard, and then pass it on to the seven churches in Asia Minor on behalf of Christ himself. We're familiar with this John, the Apostle John, who penned the gospel of John and the three epistles which bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. During his years as a disciple, he had been privileged along with Peter and James to experience uh, several intimate moments with the Lord Jesus. For example, in the home of Jairus, when he healed his daughter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he peeled back his flesh and gave them a peek at his glory in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prayed uh, that the Lord would somehow make another way than the cross. He had loyally stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus suffered and died. He was the one who Jesus asked to care for his mother Mary. He was the one He was one of the first disciples to visit the tomb after Jesus rose from the dead, so it seems fitting that Jesus entrusted this epic revelation about future things to John, not to mention the fact that he was the last remaining apostle. He was his last option, his only option. Peter, James, and Paul had already been martyred for their faith in Christ. They were all in the presence of the Lord. John was soon to follow them into glory, but not before he penned this final book of the Bible. And obviously there are many things that make the book of Revelation unique, but one of those is this is the only book of the Bible that comes with a promise that whoever reads it and listens to it and obeys it will be blessed. Notice verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So this is a promise to us as we launch into the study of at least the first few chapters of this book, that we will be blessed by God through reading it and hearing it preached, and most importantly, however, heeding the things which are written in it. In other words, it's not enough just to be hearers of the word, right? We need to be doers of the word, but we will be blessed if we are those both hearers and doers. Notice verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So John wrote this letter to the seven churches who were in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Um, These churches were located along the, the royal Roman postal route in kind of a half-circle formation, and so uh, he addressed each, each of them individually in, in, in clockwise order the way the mail would be delivered beginning with the church in Ephesus. And so as one who's, who's committed to a, a literal historical a grammatical interpretation of Scripture, we need to understand that these were actual historical local churches that existed at the time that John was writing this prophecy in A.D. 95-96. I say that because some have suggested that these um, churches are really representative or they they represent seven successive periods or, or stages or movements 
of church history from John's day until Christ's second coming. For example, Ephesus um, represents the first century church that was doctrinally sound and they were bold, but they waned in their love for Christ. And Smyrna represents the uh, the, the church in the first to the fourth century that suffered persecution under Roman emperors and, and, and on and on it goes till you finally get to the church in Laodicea, which was lukewarm like the church in our era today. Well, that's very fascinating to, to consider and there, there are some very intriguing correlations, but when you examine each era of the church, you find the merits and the, the weaknesses of, of not just one of these churches, but all seven at the same time. And so I think it's better to see these churches as, as not only literal historical churches, but representative of the types of churches that perennially exist throughout the church age. And so what John writes here to these churches is relevant to churches of all times, including our church. And I think the book of Revelation is, is just like the letters Paul wrote to particular churches, to the churches in Rome and the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica. And even though he was addressing specific issues present in those churches at that time, the Holy Spirit was intending to also provide timeless truths that apply to churches and Christians today. And when it comes to instruction about the church, I think we're most familiar with the principles found in Paul's epistles like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1st and 2nd Timothy. But the first few chapters of Revelation are often overlooked. We're not as familiar with these. And I think we're foolish to ignore these letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 because they come straight from the mouth and the heart of Jesus Christ himself. We can't say that about, you can't say that about any other New Testament epistles. They're written through the pen of another man, an apostle of Christ, right? Paul or... Um, John or, you know, you, you, you Peter, but the, these are the words of Christ himself. And so of all the teaching addressed to the church in the New Testament, I think what we find here or what we're going to find here in Revelation 2 and 3 provides us with the most helpful and most practical insight into what Christ values and blesses in his church and what he detests and what he judges. After all, he is the one who established the church in the first place. He purchased the church with his own blood. He serves as the head of the church and will one day return as our bridegroom to take us to heaven to live with him forever. And all this imagery is stated throughout the New Testament. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Paul said this in Acts 20, 28 to the elders of the church in Ephesus. They were to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that God put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ and gave him as head over all things to the church. He went on in Ephesians 4 
uh, uh, verse 15, he says, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head of even Christ. Later in chapter 5, verse 23, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife uh, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. In Colossians 1.18, he says, Christ is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then here in the book of Revelation, later towards the end, in Revelation 19, verse 7, John references or reveals the marriage supper of the Lamb with these words. He says in Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So the basic purpose of these letters from the head of the church, our heavenly bridegroom, was to provide critical counsel to to purify and sanctify his church so that we will be prepared for his imminent return. And notice as John goes on, it sounds very much like an introduction to one of Paul's letters and that it mentions grace and peace. Notice verse 4, grace to you and peace. And then notice how it also highlights the Trinitarian work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our salvation from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit, and now you have the Son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests to His God and to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And And he ends with a doxology, just like Paul often did in his introductions. But notice that one phrase in verse 5. To him who loves us. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Well, the very next phrase, he released us from our sins by his blood. Jesus proved how much he loved his bride by sacrificing himself on the cross in our place. As I was reading through these letters, just to kind of prepare my mind and heart for this series, I noticed a little theme here based on that opening phrase, to him who loves us. Notice chapter 3, Verse 9, to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have what? Loved you. And then notice how this ends in, in, in the, the, this little uh, section on the church's ends in his message to Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, those whom I, what, love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And so based on this repeated theme, I decided that 
an appropriate title for this series in light of the fact that these are letters, um, to simply call it Dear Church. A little play on words there. The church is very dear to Christ. And then a subtitle would be Christ's Heart for His Beloved Bride. Dear Church, Christ's Heart for His Beloved Bride. These are essentially love letters from the groom to his fiancée, his bride-to-be. Notice verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I think this is a reference to Zechariah 12.10, which says that when Jesus returns, those who crucified him will realize he was the Messiah after all, and they will weep tears of genuine repentance and and embrace him as their Lord and Savior, referring more to the Jews in that context. However, the rest of the world will mourn because of the guilt of their sin and, and the fear of judgment that they have coming to them from the eternal almighty God. Notice verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. We get a reference to the eternality of Christ. My wife was reading yesterday a, a book, and she was sharing with me uh, the book about the character of God, and she says it's her new favorite book, and that I need to read it, and everyone in the church needs to read it, so I'll let you know once I see what she's talking about. But she was so excited about thinking that God is the only eternal being. We're not eternal. We had a beginning. Oh, we'll live forever, but we, we had a beginning, right? Every other being had a beginning, was created. Every other thing was created. God ha- was not created, right? He has always existed and will always ex- and, and always will exist. That's just one of those right? How, how can you get your mind around an eternal being? But that's what he is. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. And that's what makes him the Almighty God. Well, now let's look at this vision. In verses 9 through 20, where John described one of the most beautiful and powerful visions of the Lord Jesus Christ ever recorded anywhere in Scripture. This is right up there with Isaiah 6 when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the angels, holy, 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 right? Ezekiel chapter 1 where, you know, the wheels are doing their thing and who even knows what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 1? But there was this amazing vision that Ezekiel had of the Lord and then Daniel chapter 7, already mentioned that. Uh, Acts 9, uh, Really, Paul didn't see much of anything but this bright light that was knocked him off his horse and blinded him temporarily as he was headed to uh, arrest Christians in, in Damascus, and Jesus revealed himself to him as the resurrected Lord. And then Revelation 19, John got to see two visions of Christ. Um, 
Revelation 19.11, and I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're going to see a lot of the same imagery from chapter 19 here in chapter 1 because here John saw the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, which was intended to set the stage for what Christ was about to say to each one of these seven churches. Jesus not only wanted to send a personal letter to each one of these churches, but he also wanted them to have a detailed description of this vision of himself that he gave to John. In other words, this this vision was not just for John. It was for them, and it is for us. In fact, some of the the descriptions that we're going to see here uh, in verses 9 through 20 that John used to portray Jesus, Jesus himself included in the opening comments of each one of his letters. Notice Chapter 2, verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 2, verse 8, to the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, to the church in Pergamum. Verse 12 of chapter 2, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. Verse 18, To the church in Thyatira, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the church in Sardis, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Chapter uh, 3, verse 7, to the message to the church in Philadelphia, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And then finally, chapter 3, verse 14, the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. So I read that, I show you that, because it's important that we understand that there is a vital connection or intimate relationship between this vision of Christ and these letters from Christ. And I think the application for us today is that the starting point for being a Christ-honoring church, a church that pleases Christ, is having a proper vision, or better word for us, a proper view of Christ. Jesus Christ must be the, the, the primary focus of The church, he must be the center of our attention. It's easy to get distracted by so many things in the life of a church, but we need to remember today that it's Christ. It's all about Christ. And what brings us together is not this place, it's not some program, it's a person. It's the person 
that John saw in this vision, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John was experiencing persecution and suffering as a result of faithfully proclaiming the word of God and boldly sharing the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so in an attempt to stop the spread of the gospel, the Roman emperor of his day was named Domitian. He had John banished to a small chunk of volcanic rock called Patmos. It was an island roughly 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, located in the Asian Sea just off the coast of Asia Minor, and it was used as a Roman penal colony. If you need a picture in your mind, if you've ever been to Alcatraz, that'd be a good picture. This godforsaken rock right in the San Francisco Bay where historically was the, the inescapable prison. It's where we put the worst criminals in our country so that they'll never escape. But in the mysterious, sweet providence of God, while John is in exile on the island of Patmos, God provided him this spectacular revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can imagine John on this rock of an island going, God, what, all I've ever tried to do is be faithful to you, and, and, and here I am suffering all alone on this island. And probably it felt like God had forgotten about him or rejected him or something, but then guess what? Jesus Christ himself shows up in all of his glory. How ironic. Reminds me of William Cowper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. That line that says, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. God smiled on John, even though it appeared he was frowning. Notice verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This was the first day of the week. This is Sunday. This is the day Christ rose from the dead and the day which the early church set aside each week to worship Christ. And perhaps John was anticipating another lonely day of worship on this desolate, God-forsaken island where he was cut off from all fellowship with other believers when all of a sudden he was unexpectedly and supernaturally transported from his earthly setting of tribulation and despair into the spirit realm to a heavenly scene of triumph and hope. And he heard a loud voice, like a trumpet it says calling out to him to write down what he saw and what he heard and to send it to the seven churches that he was 
responsible for in Asia Minor. Church tradition records that in his later years, John administered in the church uh, of Ephesus and had also traveled to each one of these churches, which were all within a hundred mile radius of Ephesus. Each of the each of these local churches were about 30 to 40 miles apart, and again, like I mentioned earlier, uh, they were listed here, John listed them here, or Christ mentions them here in verse 11, uh, in the geographical order in which the mail would have been delivered, beginning with John's home church in Ephesus and proceeding in a clockwise pattern to all the other six churches. Notice verse 12, then I turn to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. So John turned to see who it was that was talking to him, and it was none other than Christ himself. And he was standing there encircled by seven golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus was standing in the center of the lampstands, which again emphasizes the centrality of Christ in the church. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 20 where he reveals the meaning or the interpretation of the seven lampstands. He says... The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And and by the way, a lampstand is a fitting picture or imagery for a local church, which is supposed to shine brightly for Christ in the midst of a dark world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul said this to the church in Philippi, chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So God intended for this church, our church, to be a lampstand, to be a light. And when God planted this church, he lit a lampstand. He set up a lampstand and lit it up and said, you're, you're to be a light in this community for Christ. And not just in this community locally, but also globally around the world. Notice the phrase that he uses to describe Christ. He says, I saw one like a son of man. This is the title most often used by Jesus to describe himself during his earthly ministry. It was taken from the heavenly vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It was a claim to deity. And then John goes on. The remainder of this chapter is John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, grasping for symbols of any kind to describe what he saw. 
And the picture that he painted here of Christ's appearance symbolizes the, the greatness and the glory and the mystery and the, 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 the majesty and the authority of Jesus Christ reigning over and controlling his church as the holy, righteous, kingly judge. Notice the long robe. He was clothed in a, in a robe reaching to the feet like a, a judge would wear. And girded across his chest with a golden sash. This was representative of his righteousness and faithfulness by which he judges. Isaiah 11.5 is essentially the exact quote of this phrase. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. Same description was used of Christ in Daniel chapter 7, when he was referred to as the Ancient of Days. And so this was uh, the, the idea here of eternality, along with the wisdom and the purity of his judgments. He goes on in verse 14, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is a reference to the blazing omniscience of Christ, that he sees all, that he knows all. Nothing is hidden from his sight, which allows him to judge righteously. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I think it's interesting that, and we'll see this, in every letter Jesus says to the churches, I know, and then fill in the blank. He's going to tell us something he knows about that church. Guess what? He knows. Jesus knows everything there is to know about not only our church, but about our lives. He knows. He knows me. He knows you. He knows this church. He not only knows our words, our actions, he even knows our thoughts and our motives. He knows. Notice he goes on in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was made to glow in a furnace. Again, bronze was often uh, equated with judgment. The bronze altar in the temple was a place where fire consumed the, the sin offering, depicting God's judgment for sin. And I think this is depicts how Christ moves through his church with feet of judgment to, to chasten sin. He, he steps into each one of these churches to purify them and perfect them as his bride. We learn this from the book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Judgment begins with the household of God. And Christ is passionate about the purity and perfection of his, his bride, of the church. And his his judgment is is motivated out of his deep love for us and his desire for us to be holy and without sin. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
In other words, he was getting these churches ready for his return. And guess what? Our study of these letters is going to get us more ready for Christ's return. Notice verse 15. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Christ speaks with power and authority that no one can ignore. Like the, like the noise of a, a mighty waterfall that just drowns out everything and everyone else. Anybody ever have a chance to go to Niagara Falls? I'll, I'll never forget when the first time, I, the only time I went to Niagara Falls. And we drove into the town first and got off the bus. And immediately everything that was being said around me, all the noises of the cars around me was drowned out by this by this roar. And I was like, what in the world is that? I just imagined like the first Indians or, or explorers that were walking through the woods and they were like, what in the world is that? As they approached, right, this magnificent waterfall and we finally ended up going down there and, and obviously the closer you get to the, the falls themselves, it just, just it's deafening. The, the roar of, the, of, the, of, this, of this water, the mighty water coming down and crashing below. And so Jesus' words are likened to this mighty waterfall. Notice verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. You say, what, what are those? Well, jump down to verse 20. He interprets it for us. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So this is the word angelos in the Greek, normally used of angelic beings, but sometimes it's used of human beings. John the Baptist was referred to as an angelos, a messenger of the disciples, and Luke 9 were referred to as angelos or or messengers. Uh, Some think this refers to guardian angels that are assigned to various local churches, as, as if like we have a guardian angel, Lakeside Bible Church has been assigned an angel. Some people say that. I don't believe that. I think it makes better sense that these messengers refer to the leaders of the individual churches through whom these letters would be delivered. These were the pastors. These were the elders. And the fact that they are in the right hand of Christ signified his sovereign possession and power and control over the leaders of the church. In other words, as Christ under shepherds, pastors and elders are under his authority. He is the head of the church. And consequently, he is the one who's ultimately in control of the church, not the pastor, not the elders, and not the congregation. All of us must submit to Christ, and we practically do that by submitting to his word, which he describes here as this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Again, representative of the word of God, Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 mentions the powerful word of God. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Christ speaks to us through his powerful word. And then notice this last description. 
at the end of verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. His divine countenance was as, as bright and radiant as the sun at high noon. Anybody ever try to look at the sun? I'm not encouraging you to do it. Kids, don't try it at home, okay? Right? You, you, you can't look at this, into the sun any time of day, but especially not at high noon. You'll burn your eyeballs. You'll go blind. That's the point. It was so bright what he saw, but notice John's response, verse 17, when I saw him in all of his glory, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He just, he just fell over. Whether he passed out <laughs> or just laid prostrate before him. The point is, this was the typical response of, 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 of anyone who saw the Lord. They would, they would immediately think they were going to die, but at least they would start the process by getting on their face before him. What is interesting to me about this is that John knew Jesus as well as anyone when he walked on this earth, he, he was the beloved disciple. He had an intimate relationship with him. He'd laid his head on Christ's chest at the Last Supper. You would think he'd be like, hey, Jesus, good to see you again. No. He, when he was confronted with this glorious vision of Christ here in Revelation, he didn't dare treat Jesus with the same kind of familiarity that he had in the past. He responded with reverential awe and respect. And I think that is the one thing that the church lacks today. It, it's this attitude of awe and respect for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the church needs today is a, a fresh vision of Christ and all of his power and all of his glory. And we don't need to seek a vision. We got one right here. And we need to see Christ high and lifted up and exalted. And when we do that, it will cause us to be low and bow down like John was. But then in a similar way, Christ will graciously lift us up like he did John. Notice verse 17. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Christ reached down. He, he touched John and reassured him that he was accepted by reminding him of three truths about himself, that he was the, the first and the last, he was the living one, he, he had died, but now he was alive, and he had the keys to, to death in Hades. In other words, there was no need to fear because he had died and is now alive, and he conquered death, and he holds the keys to death itself. In other words, he determines who lives and who dies and when, and John, it's not your time. Because I got a job for you. 
Verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So Christ commanded John to, to write down the past. That's chapter 1, this chapter. The, the present, that's chapters 2 and 3. And the future which is chapters 4 through 22. And so verse 19, Bible scholars will often say that verse 19 is the divinely inspired outline for the book of Revelation. And really the point of chapter 1 is simply to establish in John's mind and in the church's mind, the eternal authority of Jesus Christ as the glorious and majestic Lord of the church. And again, we looked at verse 20 already. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, uh, or the pastors, elders of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And again, I think it's best to understand these seven churches as literal, historical, local churches that existed at the time John wrote this prophecy, but the spiritual conditions that existed in these churches also exist in all churches, in all generations. The same strengths, the same weaknesses, the same opportunities, the same threats of these seven churches are found in every church. And that's why even though these are personal messages written to a specific first century church, the warnings and the, the promises apply to all churches, especially churches living in these last days like we are. And we know that because of how Jesus ends every one of these letters with the same phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the church Spirit says to the churches. He says that seven times. And so the Spirit of God had other churches in mind besides just these seven churches. These endearing and enduring love letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches really contain words of both admiration and admonition. They serve as examples for us today to measure and compare the spiritual condition of our church and our lives against the perfect standards that Christ has established for his bride, the church. And through their example, we're able to discover what Jesus finds delightful in a church and what he finds distasteful in a church. And once we know what pleases Christ and displeases Christ, then we should strive to emulate the qualities that are pleasing to him and remove those things that are displeasing to him. And so every pastor, every elder, every Christian would do well to compare their churches and their individual lives to these seven churches. Don't miss that. Christ was not only writing to churches, but also to individuals within the churches. 
Churches are made up of individuals, and individuals determine the spiritual life of a church. Every one of us plays a vital role in determining the kind of church we are and will become someday. And so we can all use these letters to these churches as a grid to evaluate what Christ thinks of our church and what Christ thinks of us. Do you ever wonder what Christ thinks of you? Have you ever wondered what Christ thinks of our church? Which, by the way, is really all that should matter to us. It really doesn't matter what I think of our church. It doesn't matter what you think of this church. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of this church. The only thing that really matters is what Christ thinks of this church. Why? Because it's not my church and it's not your church. It's his church. And so the question that I want us to ask ourselves over the next seven weeks as we study together these seven letters to the seven churches is this. You ready? If Jesus were to write a letter to Lakeside Bible Church, like he did to these churches here in the book of Revelation, what would he say? What would he commend us for? What would he condemn us for? Or stated another way, what is going to be written about our church someday? What are we going to be known for as a church? What kind of legacy are we going to leave to future generations of the church? Will we be found faithful as a church? And so as we examine each of these letters and, and seek to apply them to our church and to our personal lives, we will have the opportunity to do some honest self-examination. And we can be encouraged by Christ's commendations. We may need to heed Christ's warnings. We must respond to Christ's reproofs. And we will definitely be inspired to hang in there and endure to the end and ready ourselves for Christ's return. Every one of these letters mentions something about the one who overcomes, the one who remains faithful to the end. May that be true, true of our church, and that may, be true, that may be true of every one of us as individuals. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and specifically this unique portion of your word that um, sometimes scares off people just because it's kind of hard to understand and interpret. But I pray, Father, that as we walk through this opening section of the book of Revelation, it would really have a, a lasting impact, not only in the life of our church, but in each of our lives as Christians. And so bless us as we study your word together as we hear it, as we heed it, Father, that we would be uh, more conformed to the image of Christ, the head of the church and our loving bridegroom, we pray in his name, amen.